0: to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Heather Conley. In this episode of Russian Roulette, I am delighted to sit down with Dr. Andrei Zagorsky, head of the Department for Disarmament and Conflict Resolution Studies at the Primakov National Research Institute of World Economy and International Relations, and Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, lecturer of strategic studies with Peking University for the Defense and Strategic Studies course at the Australian War College. Clearly, this episode is spanning a lot of time zones. We discuss Russia's plans for its chairmanship of the Arctic Council and its broader economic and security policy in the Arctic. We also explore China's Arctic strategy since its unveiling of its Arctic White Paper in 2018 and observe shifts in its approach since becoming a permanent observer to the Arctic Council in May of 2013. And then lastly, we discuss the strategic conundrum of future Sino-Russian cooperation in the Arctic. We do a lot of myth-busting, what is really happening, and what perhaps headlines are telling us. Let's get started. For those of you that know how near and dear the Arctic is to my heart, you know how excited I am about this conversation. And Andre, I want to immediately turn to you. May 20th was a very big day. It was the Arctic Council Ministerial held in Reykjavik, Iceland. And it was the passing of the baton. Iceland held the two year chairmanship of the Arctic Council, this intergovernmental forum of eight. Arctic states um, and uh, the permanent participants or the indigenous community. But now the chairmanship uh, turns for two years uh, to Russia. So help our audience understand what Russia's chairmanship will look like, what's its focus, and then what uh, what are the Russian government's plans for uh, the Russian Arctic for the next two years? Great ambition, lots of energy, lots of funding, but what will it do? Thank you for being with us. Over to you, Andrei. Uh,
1: thank you, Heather. I believe that generally the Russian chairmanship will be in line with the previous chairmanships of other countries. And this is a long tradition of the Arctic Council that every incoming chairmanship takes over, say, 90 percent of what the previous uh, the chairmerships we're doing in terms of projects, focus, etc. Uh, the current uh, Russian chairmanship is not very much a difference from this. Uh, Russia has presented four major priorities, uh, one looking at the population of the Arctic, including a specific, with a specific focus on the indigenous population, but generally looking at issues like uh, well-being of the population in the Arctic, health issues, etc. A very strong focus on the Russian chairmanship would be environment or broadly conservation of the Arctic. And this is not uh, simply a traditional focus by the Arctic Council, but also uh, a very important preoccupation of the current Russian Arctic policy. Because if you you look at the strategy adopted last year, uh, the major change to the previous one is uh, very strongly emphasizing the consequences uh, of the climate change uh, in the Russian Arctic Uh, with the permafrost melting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And this is seen as a major threat to security uh, of Russia uh, in the whole region. So the uh, traditional focus of the Arctic Council on the climate change consequences in the Arctic and the uh, effects of the um, Arctic warming uh, on the global climate uh, is very much coinciding with the current Russian domestic priorities. Uh, Russia looks at the issues, and this is one of the priorities at the sustainable development of the Arctic uh, specifically with with the focus of the transportation routes, uh, shipping, blue shipping in the Arctic, but um, emphasizing that this all needs to be done in a sustainable manner. Uh, not least emphasizing the sustainable development goals uh, of the United Nations and uh, looking through the uh, economic and social development through the lens of the sustainable development goals. And uh, the last priority is, um, uh, it's also trad- traditional uh, for every chairmanship. The same was uh, on the list of the priorities of Icelandic chairmanship which preceded the Russian one, strengthening of the Arctic Council. If we go deeper looking at the specifications of this chairmanship, it essentially means that uh, uh, Russia is uh, going to be expected to strengthen the links between the Arctic Council and other regional frameworks, such as uh, the Arctic Coast Guard Forum or the Economic Council, Arctic Economic Council and other uh, elements of the Arctic Council family, if you wish. So this is, uh, in short, the Russian preferences and priorities for the Arctic. I don't expect it to be different from what the previous chairmanships were doing.
0: Andre, um, thank you so much, and I think it's important for our listeners to know that you know there is a population in the Arctic. Four million people live in the Arctic, and, and half of that concentration of population is certainly in in the Russian Arctic, in the European Arctic. It's really important to understand this is about people and keeping people at the center of of the policy. And I just wanna tag on one other question. So that is the Russian chairmanship. What are the Russian government's goals for its own Arctic development in the next two years? I mean, there have been important strategies that have been released uh, that look at uh, Russia's development until 2035. What stands out to you as the key priorities for the Russian government and its own Arctic development?
1: Uh, number one is, of course, uh, developing Arctic resources. And here the focal point is the Kara Sea Basin, so roughly to the north of the uh, West Siberia. Uh, and uh, this will be, in the coming 10, 15, 20 years, the major focus of the resources development in the Russian Federation, specifically uh, concentrating on the liquefied natural gas. Uh, also, Rosneft is planning to uh, ship oil uh, via the Northern Sea route. Uh, some projects run in terms of, of the, coal, the coal development on the Tamir Peninsula. So this would be geographically the uh, focus of Russian economic development, which needs to be done environmentally friendly. And uh, this uh, focus is su- supported by a number of other uh, plans. Uh, we already have a port of Sabeta, which has become the focal point of the development in the region. There will be a few more terminals built around the Kara Sea Shores. This is also uh, something connected with the building of the uh, nuclear icebreakers because it's only with the nuclear icebreakers uh, that, that you can make a year-round uh, shipping in the Kara Sea, plus building the ice-strengthened gas carriers and many other stuff. So this, this will remain the focus for the sustainable development. Uh, my uh, second point would be to say, and I already have mentioned this, adapting to the climate change in, in the Russian Arctic not only because it has repercussions for the human health uh, in the Arctic, but also uh, because this does endanger uh, industrial infrastructure in the region. And uh, this may increase dramatically the danger of man-made disasters uh, in the Arctic. So this is a very, very important point for the Russian policy uh, so far. And uh, of course, uh, number three, I would say, would be security uh, in the Arctic. Security in broad sense, uh, if we go to the uh, Russian doctrines the, the on the Arctic, we will note that security is seen not only from the perspective of military security, even less so from the military security, but increasingly through the human security and environmental security.
0: Andrei, thank you so much. I mean, I think that just perfectly sets up the what I see as the great contradiction of Russia's Arctic policy. On the one hand, as you said, it's Arctic resources, it's fossil fuel production and exportation. At the same time... Uh, you know, one of the most important studies that came out of the Arctic Council Ministerial was the Arctic is now warming 3.1 times faster than any place um, on the planet. And the, the the adaptation and the mitigation strategies have to be put at the forefront. And that tension is certainly going to play out. Uh, and we can dive into that in a minute. Liz, I want to turn to you. You are a, a, a great scholar, not only of, of Russia's uh, policies in the Arctic, but also China's policy. So I, I turn to you and, and welcome any reflections for, uh, that you had over, uh, from the Arctic Council Ministerial on the 20th, Russia's chairmanship. But then I want to turn you to your observation about China's evolving policies in the Arctic, a permanent observer to the Arctic Council since 2013. How do you think they are using that uh, to further their own interests in the Arctic?
2: Um, my first point, I think, would be around kind of underscoring what Andre has already pointed out, which is, you know, the majority of Russia's economic interests in the Arctic context can really be promoted in the Arctic Council context, and we expect this to continue. Quite obviously, during the chairmanship, there were three. I think there were three key things that really stood out for me. If I'm reflecting on this most recent Arctic Council ministerial, the first thing was. The optics of the US Russia relationship. I think um, a lot of us you know Arctic watchers expected a kind of repeat of of the Chinese US meet in Alaska earlier in the year. But instead we really had this blinken Lavrov discussion, which was warmer, certainly not what most of us expected would come out of of that first meet a clear commitment from both sides really to work collaboratively or at least you know reinvest in communication and dialogue in the region and within the relationship the second point i think has been the response or rather the the lack of formal response from china to this meeting and to the broader Arctic Council uh, ministerial meeting. Um, as you, you know, rightly pointed out, they are an observer to the council. Um, they would have had a delegation there observing this most recent meeting. And we had, we've had pretty much silence out of Beijing over the past few days following the meeting, until twenty fifth of May. We had a. Global Times publication put out, which basically, you know, warned Russia of you know falling for any U.S. carrots because you know the, the end game for Washington was quite clearly to drive a wedge between Russia and China in the Arctic. So that I think brings out a bit of the anxiety here from Beijing. We know that they are worried about being kind of locked out of the Arctic context. It is the national interest to be able to freely access the high seas of the Arctic Ocean, whether for fisheries, whether for critical resources, you know, minerals. um, Well, it's emerging more as as a polar identity component to their great power strategy. It's mirroring a lot of the Antarctic um, push and to have the potential for Washington and Russia to kind of you know, close ranks around and and find a mutual interest in muting China's ability to expand its presence in the Arctic Ocean in the high seas component, I think is quite a worry for China. And the third point that was of interest for me was on the sidelines of the Arctic Council meeting, I think the Nord Stream waiver, right? The Biden administration has more or less decided it's counterproductive to continue its pressure um, on Germany in getting this pipeline uh, online. And I think that, you know, what we might see over the next few years is European appetite for Russian energy coming out of the Arctic might increase. So the 80% Cargo destinations that are headed for Asia, you know, that might reduce. So quite a few big kind of geopolitical shifts, I think, are on the horizon, um, that it kind of started permeating on, on the sidelines of this Arctic Council meeting. We've just watched.
0: Liz, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think what we're what we saw throughout the ministerial, and then of course the bilateral between Secretary Blinken and, and Minister Lavrov is, you know, climate in the Arctic is seen in the basket of the opportunities of the relationship, what I call the soft reset. Uh, and I think you also saw that there was a lot of preparation in keeping this relationship very sound uh, for uh, the bilateral summit that was announced uh, that to take place on June the 16th in, in Geneva. But I think you are seeing this is this is designed to be hopefully a place of a positive engagement. Uh, and I think it's really important. Your comment on, on China, I think is really important. I wanna just go into that a little deeper. You know, the China's anxiety about being locked out of the Arctic. I, I think that is absolutely right. And it's so interesting that when China produced its white paper on the Arctic in 2018, everybody was just fussing so much on the, you know, China as a near Arctic state. And we just sort of cling to that. For me the most interesting element of the white paper, I'd, I'd be curious in your thoughts, is that Beijing believes that there's quote undetermined sovereignty in the arctic and I think if there's one thing the United States and Russia can agree on is that no sovereignty is quite clear in the arctic, thank you very much, and we have that international legal framework of the the of UNCLOS. we don't have undetermined sovereignty, we have lots of law. And so I, I would just welcome your, you know, how does Beijing ensure that they are not locked out of the Arctic? What are the approaches you're seeing economic, security, science-based to
2: prevent China uh, from, from being locked out? What are those signs? Absolutely. So the first point I think we need to make here when we're entering the discussion of, On on what basis does China feel it has rights in the Arctic? Um, I think we need to step back and go, well, hold on. Is the Arctic a global commons or not, right? So global commons here, we're talking about a space that has no sovereign state control. I would argue we've got Antarctica, space, and the high seas are those real global commons. What's conflated, I think, In policy documents in East and the West and in in mass media reports as well, is that the Arctic writ large is a global commons. We don't do enough work here to unpack the concept of the Russian Arctic, you know, the North American Arctic, the European Arctic. But when we're looking at Chinese interests, and you spoke to the white paper, that particular document is talking about the Arctic Commons in terms of the Arctic Ocean high seas. So I think that's a really important point to make. It narrows down, I think, the kind of the pool um, that China is interested in to the area around the North Pole. Um, And hopefully later on we can chat more about the implications of an extended um, continental shelf bid. But I think, yeah, the Arctic is viewed by many in Beijing, outside of Beijing, as a commons, but I think we're really just talking about the high seas there. So the Chinese, as I said, do clarify this and their access and their kind of God-given right that they view to the Arctic region is the freedom to access these seas. It's kind of murky when we come to unpacking the implications for the Northern Sea Route or the Northwest Passage. As we know, Russia and Canada both kind of view these as national internal waterways. And that's something that we know that Beijing has will increasingly push back against, um, but that's a point that we haven't yet seen it cross over in the Russia relationship. We've seen no FONOPS in the North um, northern sea route and we've had Chinese vessels who haven't had the right permits um, refused access. So I think the basis for China's interest in It's Arctic identity is really that kind of access to the commons of the high seas component, how that they how they're delivering on, you know, achieving this this strategy Well, we have a country that now has an indigenous nuclear icebreaker build capability, which is huge. If you have any interest in the comparative studies down in the Antarctic, you can see quite a lot of strategies mirroring there as well. So more of this grey zone activity. So really creative interpretations of UNCLOS, Beijing is signatory and has ratified. It relies on, you know, those principles of freedom of navigation but then interprets it in a rather different way in its own backyard in the South China Sea. Um, the next point is obviously science. Um, research into climate change and the impacts on low lying parts of uh, China is a huge draw card. And the problem that I think for strategists is how do we? pick apart what is deemed scientific and what is deemed military. Um, There's so much dual-use capability out there, and that's a real problem we've got in the Antarctic at the moment. So we've got PLA officers who are on Chinese bases, but governed by the treaty, so long as they're there doing scientific, quote-unquote, research, then it is permissible. It's not in breach. So China is kind of working around, I guess, yeah, the grey zone outsides of international law and norms, and it is starting to turn its eye to the Arctic and the Arctic Ocean and high seas component. You spoke really briefly then about the economic interests, absolutely. We know that that's the Beijing playbook, this kind of geoeconomics component. This is where I think people get caught up in this concept of a Russia-China axis when it comes to the Arctic because, yeah, Beijing is one of the largest economic partners in Russia's Arctic energy space, for sure. With Yamal LNG, their ownership stakes at just under 30%. Arctic LNG, which is another energy plant up there in the Russian Arctic, they're at closer to 20%. But I think the key point is they aren't in any controlling or majority stakeholder position in any of these energy ventures. And they are also diversifying into infrastructure, so they are buying port systems. They are investing in digital connectivity. They are funding LNG tankers and vessels, the creation of of the actual infrastructure required to move the product to market. But looking ahead, I think the big drawcard for China is I'm kind of split on whether it's you know fisheries, um, fisheries insecurity which for now is looked after with the fishery ban um, on the high seas. How long that will stand, we don't know. And the interest in Asia, Europe shipping. But um, we know how how much of the draw card the northern sea route can be. It can cut transit time in half, you know, the commercial winds are there, but the fact that the commercial uptick hasn't occurred yet is really interesting and we've had numerous uh, global shipping firms come to the table and say, you know, we're not going to use that route. Um, We will continue with our traditional Suez and Malacca routes into Asia.
0: Liz, thank you. I mean, I I think there's so much there And, and Andre, I really want to turn to you because you know, on the one hand, uh, Russia will increasingly rely on China's investment and its energy markets to develop the Russian Arctic, particularly the Northern Sea route. But at the same time, there is strategic anxiety about a growing Chinese uh, presence, a maritime presence uh, in the Arctic, you know, icebreakers. If China develops a comprehensive fleet of icebreakers, it won't need Russian icebreakers. It's more interested perhaps in the transpolar route than the Northern sea route. So, so help us understand the Russian perspective about China's Arctic strategy. And I, I think Liz, you gave us some really interesting feedback on sort of watching China's Antarctic approach as foretelling perhaps what we'll see in the future for China's Arctic presence. So, but Andre, let me, let me turn over to you. There was so much in there, the economics, the the, the unclosed dynamics, what are, what are your thoughts?
1: Let me begin by uh, saying that China did not invent the concept of a near-Arctic state. The country which did invent it was the UK. Uh, in 2013, in the first Arctic strategy, the UK described itself as the nearest, nearest Arctic neighbor. So we often pay too much attention to such kind of uh, expressions. Uh, Second, just to emphasize what Elizabeth has said, uh, we do have a very solid basis for avoiding legal disputes in the Arctic between Arctic and non-Arctic states for well, the very simple reason that the jurisdiction uh, of coastal states does not extend to the whole of the Arctic Ocean. And under the international maritime law under UNCLOS, non-Arctic states also have here rights. So This is something which, which Elizabeth was pointing to. And uh, in fact, the, the very, very positive signal coming from the Chinese White Book was to say that China was, was prepared to work on the basis of uh, UNCLOS. And that was putting an end to all the discussions and speculations about, uh, about any, any uh, definition of the Arctic uh, like, like Antarctic as a global common. So this is a basis on which we can find uh, solutions to any, uh, any a, a balance of interest of different users uh, of the uh, Arctic Ocean. One more point is uh, specifically in the most recent uh, ministerial meeting of the Arctic Council, the observer states were provided the opportunity to pre- present their statements in written. And the Chinese statement was extremely cooperative. Not least the Chinese uh, specifically at this this meeting informed the members of the Arctic Council that China has completed the process of ratification of the high seas fisheries agreement of 2018 and will deposit the instruments of ratification uh, as soon as possible. Just uh, pointing out the most positive elements of China's engagement uh, in the Arctic affairs. So there are of course issues which need to be sorted out. And we do have such issues in the bilateral relations with China, although Russia is not the single focus of the Chinese economic interest and investment. Uh, I believe the literature is more full of uh, stories of Chinese engagement in Greenland or in Iceland, etc. Russia is, of course, interested in cooperation with China. China is known for being one of the major investors into the Arctic LNG with Novatek, uh, But China is not a single one. Uh, There are three major investors now for the uh, Arctic LNG 2. It's France, total, it's uh, the Chinese and the Japanese, the Mitsui group. So uh, China is part of this. China participates in these endeavors uh, primarily with money. Having uh, a 20% stake uh, in the LNG uh, production, it gets 20% of the output, not 80%. Uh, So physically receiving the LNG from the uh, respective plants. Russia would like China to be more active because when China decided to step into the LNG projects it uh, declined from the participation in um, other pro- projects terrestrial projects like uh, Vankor of uh, Rosneft but this void was filled by other countries India was stepping in uh, into Vankor we do have some Viet- even Vietnamese uh, uh, participation so the picture is much broader than just simply uh, singling out China China is uh, active participant to uh, the cons- international consortium, not led by China, uh, but uh, including also Canadians and the uh, uh, Japanese uh, international shipping consortium, which is shipping out the LNG uh, from the Yamal uh, sites. Uh, and China is uh, slightly, continually experimenting with the transit, but transit is, is not the, the biggest point for the Chinese engagement. I would say this is it. Uh, I don't see any serious Chinese investment into the port infrastructure. All transportation facilities and infrastructure is built by the Russian public money, sometimes with the private participation, but it is minor as far as the new facilities in the Arctic are concerned. Uh, And China uh, indeed uh, in general is not active in um, uh, infrastructure development uh, in Russia in particular, Uh, not only in the Arctic, but in other places uh, as well. So I don't see any, any maritime Silk Road occurring so far. Of course, uh, there, are, there are some concerns specifically in the defense establishment of Russia. But of course, uh, China, uh, Korea, Japan, and even India having icebreakers does not mean that this is going to be used for military purposes. There's one legal uh, issue because, of course, the Chinese would say, why should our ships be escorted by the Russian icebreakers? We do have an icebreaker, but this was not uh, a big controversy so far. I believe that uh, the speculations about the uh, strategic implications of the Chinese activities in the Arctic are very much exaggerated, both in Russia and uh, in the US and uh, elsewhere, because for really being present in military terms in the Arctic, you need to solve, uh, fix two problems. You need to have a fleet which would be deployable in the Arctic. China does not have it. If you would have a fleet deployable in the Arctic, you would need uh, this fleet to be sustainable. And this is even a greater problem in the Arctic for the harsh uh, environmental conditions. So when China would begin build, not icebreakers, but uh, warships uh, double-hulled with ice strengthening, special design, etc., I would begin thinking about the, Ch- the Chinese ideas to go military into the Arctic or Antarctic. Uh, of course, uh, having an eye on this is important, but uh, so far I don't see any signs of any preparations on the Chinese side to be active militarily in the region.
2: I just want to jump in there on a few points. Um, I, I think that the kind of running joke in the Arctic community is if China or, or Russia or the US, whoever, pick a state, wants to go to war in the Arctic, the first thing the enemy, you know, team, the, the blue team would have to do is go rescue them, right? Um, and that points to Andre's point about sustainability, um, but I just wanted to point to another point about the uh, sort of long term interest that China has in the region. Um, yes, it could be presence. Yes, there's a bit of identity building there. But when we're talking about long term economic interests, you know, we've got Arctic LNG 2, which is the second um, LNG plant up there on the Yamal Peninsula, set to come online 2023, 2024. The first 20 years of its entire um, output is already booked to Asian customers. Um, majority of that is to China. So this is, you know, this is how China thinks in, in decades, right, for energy security. And the last thing that state would want to do is to upset the cooperative dynamics and get in the way of a, a really important
1: energy supply route. Just to understand the magnitude of this, because China has a regasification terminals for a total of 100 million tonnes of LNG. It taking the output and the Chinese share in the Arctic LNG, this would be maximum 8 million tons. So 8% of the total import of LNG. This is this is big, but this is, of course, not a domination of the market. Well,
0: I have to say, um, I, I really see China's strategy in the Arctic as it, it is a diversification strategy, but it's not a primary strategy, meaning that exactly to Andre's point. Exactly. Yes?
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. This is not the alternative, but diversification, right?
0: So this is, you know, 8%, and it, you're right, Liz, it's a 20-year commitment that is a steady state supply, but China does, is not going to rely on uh, Russian Arctic energy resources for its primary source. The shipping route, same thing. It is a potential diversification route, and we're looking at, you know, 2040, 2050, but it's nothing of, of great urgency. Liz, I agree with you that actually the protein the fisheries may be the real interest here. You look at Chinese Greenlandic trade. It's really export of fisheries that, you know, we we talk about rare earths, incredibly important infrastructure, but it could be the protein that could be one of the most near term sources. But you're absolutely right. I'm so glad both of you are here because there is so much myth busting that we have to do about the Arctic, what it is, what it isn't, who is doing what, and I think this is uh, an incredibly important conversation, and, and thank you both. The last few minutes that we have here, I do wanna turn to something that, again, talk about myth-busting here, that screams headlines about you know an oncoming Arctic war over you know extensions of the Outer Continental Shelf. Um, and that, that is not the case, uh, everyone's following unclose uh, in international uh, maritime law, but uh, I think there's some confusion to this process as well. And this has huge stakes, uh, obviously for some of the seabed uh, mining opportunities. So Andre, in our last few minutes, I want to turn to you, this is so unfair because this is such a complex conversation, to just give us a quick overview of Russia's approach to extending its outer continental shelf well uh, into the central Arctic And then Liz, maybe I'll have you sort of think how how China is thinking about the seabed. We're seeing a lot of Chinese science that is dedicated to to the seabed. They're clearly interested in that economic opportunity potentially. But tell us, Andre, where where is the Russian government on multiple uh, scientific
1: claims submitted to the United Nations for adjudication? Help us understand this. Uh, Hidro, you have correctly pointed out that everybody is following the uh, UNCLOS, Article 76, and that means if uh, a country wants to extend its continental shelf beyond the 200 nautic miles, we uh, need to present scientific data to the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf uh, for the check. And this is uh, is not a political commission, this is uh, a technical commission which uh, examines the scientific validity of the evidence provided by the coastal state just uh, to establish whether or not uh, this uh, scientific evidence supports uh, that uh, the respective areas are uh, consistent with the definition of the shelf. And that's the first important part that everybody goes to the commission uh, to uh, get their recommendations, Uh, whether or not the experts from the commission would agree uh, that uh, the claimed, Seabed uh, um, uh, is really uh, uh, meeting the criteria for continental shelf. Uh, second, uh, what is important, uh, we now have three uh, claims uh, by Russia, by Denmark for Greenland, and a, a Canadian claim uh, for the continental shelf in the Central Arctic Ocean, uh, which are, well, the Russian claim is being examined by the Commission. Uh, the Commission has not yet established a subcommission on the Danish claim or on the Canadian claim. Uh, but this is less important, and we already know that we do have a significant overlap in the claims by all the three countries. Uh, That implies that uh, should the Commission uh, issue recommendations which would accept the claims by all the three countries, we will have to provide for delimitation of the continental shelf. In 2008, in at the meeting of the five Arctic coastal states, we agreed that we will proceed on the basis of UNCLOS. 2014, Russia, Canada, and Denmark, fixed by an exchange of notes, the way we are going to proceed. And that means should should our rights overlap, we so far have only claims, not yet the rights uh, confirmed by the commission. Should our rights overlap, we will uh, delimitate the shelf according to the established international uh, practices. Uh, the way how to do it is very clear. Uh, we have even, even um, uh, fairly, precise ideas about how the shelf would be delimitated uh, in case of the confirmation uh, of all the three claims. And this should not be a problem. In his last addition to the claim, uh, which was done in 2021, uh, Russia has reaffirmed again the commitment to the uh, cooperative delimitation. And actually uh, we do have a, an agreed uh, procedure for doing so. Any anytime a country provides its claim to the Commission, uh, the country is supposed uh, in this claim to notify the Commission of the existing agreement uh, how to proceed if the the shelf would be overlapping. And all other countries means all the two other countries would confirm the existence of this uh, agreement. And so far, everybody was following this way. So the Chinese idea would be, once the process of establishing the outer limits of continental shelf by coastal states is completed, and we will have to wait at least for a couple of decades uh, for this to happen, uh, there would be an area which would be beyond the national jurisdiction of the coastal states, an area of the uh, in, in the ocean which would be which would not be included in the continental shelves of the coastal states. Uh, so far, we know of uh, two regions: one is around the uh, Gakkel Ridge, uh, and one is uh, uh, in, the, in the Canadian Basin, which clearly don't meet the criteria for continental shelves. So at least two areas would would remain outside the national jurisdiction of coastal states, and this would be the area. Of the so-called humankind heritage, which is administered by the International Seabed Authority. So, what Chinese were always claiming, saying, "Okay, you proceed with the uh, with the extension of the continental shelf, but there must be uh, some uh, some area or areas in the Arctic Ocean which will be beyond your jurisdiction. This would be the common common heritage of the mankind." The important to know is that uh, uh, no, not a single country, a not a single country would be allowed to go. Uh, with mining into this area, because all licenses for exploration and for mining are issued only by the International Seabed Authority. And I believe that most likely we will simply close these areas for any mining, but the Chinese will be okay, knowing that there is such an issue, uh, such an area uh, in the Arctic Ocean. (laughs) And uh, secondly, why is it important to go through the commission on the limits of the continental shelf? According to UNCLOS, once uh, a coastal state establishes the outer limits of its continental shelf in accordance with the recommendations of the commission this is final and binding on everyone so no one can claim can 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 contest uh, these uh, outer limits of the continental shelf and this procedure uh, provides for the maximum legal predictability in these issues china would have also to accept it if no country deviates from the procedure established by uh, unclos so, I don't see this to be a, a, a very big issue, although of course it is emotional. It is emotional. In Russia, it was extremely emotional in Canada. It was less emotional in Denmark, but of course, the Danish also pay attention to this process.
0: Andre, you did an amazing job explaining something so complex and so succinctly. In the last few minutes that we have, Liz, uh, let me let me turn to you uh, to help us understand. Beijing's perspective on the outer uh, continental shelf extension. And again, what does China want? This is an, I'm seeing a lot of science that's devoted to, to the seabed. Some in the national security community are concerned about, you know this is exploration for placing sensors is you know the undersea cables. Uh, which are so vital to the global economy um, that, you know, there's there's some suspicion there. What, what is China interested in, particularly on the seabed and, and this whole process that Andre so rightly notes is pretty clear there isn't any undetermined uh, international legal processes here. So help us understand Beijing's thoughts on this.
2: I think this is another area in which our kind of myth busting kicks in um, as experts. We really have to pick up the weight and and and, and fix the narrative here. Um, but in terms of China's views on what is going on with. Commission the Continental Shelf, um, I think, first of all, it is very much happy to sit back and and watch. Um, It really has no other choice there at the moment. But long-term, in terms of the economic opportunities, I think Beijing's chasing in the the high north, um, high seas of the Arctic Ocean. Um, First of all, yeah, resources, fisheries, but as Andre has amazingly unpacked for us, you know, if this Continental Shelf debate is sorted, which I think we will have Denmark, Canada, uh, Russia, potentially the US if they ratify, um, come to their own sort of agreement, which is all that they can really do. Um, The Commission won't award quote-unquote territory there. I think we will have a situation in which the, the mass media and this idea of a race to the North Pole for resources kind of becomes, it turns to water, right? Because the water column, the fisheries and the seabed and the minerals are now more or less off limits, right? They're they're spoken for, except for those two small areas um, in which Andre talks about. And that's, I think, something to to be watching in the long term. In these zones, will we expect, you know, the Chinese uh, fishery militias to appear um, like they are in the South China Sea? Um, And that leads to the next kind of issue, which is once we have a presence of China um, in one way or another in this region, in these two specific zones, how do Arctic stakeholders, how does you know the West, or however you want to sort of frame the issue, how do they respond? And I'll point to kind of a historical fact here and that's that the crafting of the Antarctic Treaty in itself was really because the West couldn't kick the Soviets out of the International Polar Year in 1957, you know. So if we look to the potential, as André pointed, uh, sorry, flagged, that we could see these two zones have, you know, um, an exemption from mining. Um, It's just writ large closed. Well, can we then expect some kind of um, Antarctic lesson with the Madrid Protocol there that bans mining in the Antarctic, in which it is permissible under the name of science, right? So, we are increasingly seeing, I think, a strategy from Beijing that is grey zone, that is kind of eroding the edges of international norms, but also kind of rig- creating enough wriggle room to achieve strategic interests. So slapping science on, you know, research in the Arctic in these two particular zones, I think will become increasingly the playbook for Beijing and make it permissible um, for, one, Beijing's um, continued presence in the region, and two, that kind of translates in the longer term to that kind of national identity that it is a rightful stakeholder in, you know, international commons.
0: Well, and I think it's a thank you, Liz, so much. Extremely helpful. And I think it's very interesting that, uh, Andre, was it not last year or maybe a year and a half ago? that uh, Moscow and Beijing announced a joint uh, Sino-Russian scientific center in the north. uh, And we see that scientific collaboration. uh, So that may be, again, another element to to keep our eyes on as well. Well, this has been a tour de force of understanding the motivations of, of Russia truly a great power in the Arctic in every sense of the word. Uh, China, exploring a polar identity and what that means uh, in its own interests and understanding where the Arctic Council Environmental Protection Sustainable Development comes into the conversation. Thank you, Andre. Thank you, Liz. We covered an enormous amount of of very dense uh, information, but you really helped us break it down and focus on key insights. So thank you both so much for being with us. Most welcome. Thank you. That's it for our show today. Please check the show notes for a link to Andre and Liz's bios. And for those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and think about leaving us a rating or review. If you're not an iTunes user, you can stream the podcast on Spotify. And again, keep spreading the word about Russian roulette. Finally, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone who worked so hard to make this podcast happen including our fabulous producer, program manager, Roxana Gabrielina and the entire CSIS External Relations team. Thanks for listening.